listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. This is part one of a fascinating in-depth conversation with a talented songwriter, music producer, and composer whose amazing career dates back to the 1950s. His songs have been recorded by such notable musical artists as Ray Charles, Tony Bennett, The Carpenters, The Ventures, Glenn Campbell, Dr. John, The Eagles, James Brown, and even the Chipmunks. He has written some of the most iconic television themes of all time, including the theme for SWAT and Nadia's theme, a.k.a. Cotton's Dream, which has been the opening theme to The Young and the Restless since it debuted in 1973. As a film music composer and or music supervisor, he has worked with such notable filmmakers as Larry Cohen, John Milius, Walter Hill, William Peter Blatty, and Fred Decker. And his film credits include... Dillinger, Hard Times, Rolling Thunder, The Warriors, The Ninth Configuration, Xanadu, Night of the Creeps, and Exorcist 3. Today, I couldn't be more excited to welcome Barry Dvorzon to the show, and we've got a lot to get to, so let's get started. First off, I'd love to talk about your background in music. When did the music bug grab you? Well, my, my father was a musician and singer. As a, a kid, I mean, we were gypsies. We we would go from one city to the next, you know, from one booking to the next. I did have that musical background. Uh, however, oddly enough, I, I started out taking violin lessons because my dad played the violin. And I think they, they said, what are we doing here? This is no life. We want something better for our son. So they discontinued my lessons. I was thrilled that I didn't have to practice an hour a day. Uh, but finally, we got to an age where it just didn't make sense for the family to travel. So we settled in Palm Springs, California, where uh, my sister and I went to school. My parents bought a piano because they wanted my sister to learn the piano. They figured, you know, that's a nice thing. But they didn't want any kind of musical career for either one of us. Anyway, my sister had no interest in music. And so sometime in high school, I just start sitting down at the piano and playing around. Without a lesson, I, I kind of taught myself to play the piano. And I started writing songs. And, uh, well, my folks liked the idea that I was writing songs. And, of course, they loved every song I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it began, really. Um, I studied... Uh, theory, you know, in, in, uh, I went to Pasadena City College. I studied music theory there and actually went on a television show called Peter Potter's 
show there uh, looking for songwriters and and I won and I thought oh boy here's here's my chance but nothing materialized and uh, and then I went into the navy for 4 years that's where the music stopped and uh when I came out music was kind of a dream and I signed up really for uh, refrigeration and air conditioning school because I'd been in the, an engineer on, on board a destroyer and uh, I thought air conditioning is the future and of course I was right yes so I signed up with a carrier and I was going to show up there to you know take these courses in air conditioning and refrigeration and my sister called from Palm Springs and she was all excited and she said Barry Barry your song has been recorded Apparently, while I was in the Navy, she worked for a music publisher, and she kept hounding him, you know, to listen to my songs. And anyway, he listened to one of them and liked it and got it recorded, you know. What song was that? It was called Look What You've Done to Me by a guy called Bob Carroll. Look, look, look what you done to me. Look, look, look what you done to me. Look, look, look what you done to me. So anyway, she heard it on the radio. She called the radio station, said somebody stole my brother's song, and he said, "Who's your brother?" And she told him. He says, "Well, that's who wrote the song." So anyway, I'm in Los Angeles. And I called Music City, which is the big record store on Sunset and Vine. And I said, do you have Look What You've Done to Me by Bob Carroll? She comes back to the phone. Yes, we do. I ran down there, walked into Music City. The minute I got that record in my hand, I looked at Barry DeVorzon as the writer. It was Hello Music and Goodbye Air Conditioning. <laughs> and I drove home. I remember I was spending the money. Man, they recorded my song. Oh, I'm going to be rich. Of course, I made $125 on that. It was not a successful record, but it sucked me into the business. And that's how it really all began. Uh, uh, it all began for me, really, as a songwriter. And, you know, from there, I started a little publishing company, and I was writing songs, and then I started producing artists. And before I knew it, I started a record company. And uh, relatively young age, in a very in a relatively short period of time. And that was Valiant Records. Yeah, and so I sold Valiant, and I sold my publishing company to Warner Brothers. You know, I did it all in nine and a half years, which is quite amazing. But uh, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I I was in L.A. when L.A. exploded as a music center, and I was there when it was happening and so I was one of the beneficiaries uh, w when I sold my companies uh, you know I but don't get me wrong I I was a workaholic I was I needed some time off so I decided I would go to Europe for a two or three week vacation and uh, I never came back for three years <laughs> around what uh, years were those I mean, was this in the 60s or the 70s yeah it was in the late 60s it was the uh, last 68, 69, and 70, or maybe the last part of 67 through 70. And of course, that I, I, I lived, I was in London when London was exploding with the, the, the Beatles and the Stones and the discotheques and 
King's Road, and you know, it was it, London was just the place. And then I lived really all over. I lived in Rome and, and Paris, and you know, just wherever the wind blew me, I went. And it was a really a, an amazing time because I had, uh, other than my family, my mom and dad and my sis, I, I didn't have a significant other. Uh, I didn't have a job. I was totally free. And it was amazing. Yeah. But believe it or not, even that kind of freedom gets old. Yeah. And uh, I, I missed my old friends. I missed the States and LA and my family. And so after living in discotheques and living the Dolce Vita, I, I came back. Were you uh, playing or, or pursuing music at all while you were in Europe casually, you know, or like for fun, not, not professionally? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> believe it. Just three years of taking it off from work. Yeah. And I don't know if that was such a good idea. <clears throat> Certainly not for my career. But for me, it was a lot of fun. And so, you know, you just go with the way your life lays itself out. Uh, anyway, when I came back, I had some offers, you know, to get back in the record business and all that. And I, I, I just didn't feel comfortable going that direction. I wanted to kind of go back to writing. I wanted to, I wanted to go back to the pure creative. Uh, and then, of course, I, I met this beautiful woman, and we got married and moved to Montecito. Of course, everyone thought I'd lost my mind because the music business, everything, was in L.A. And I was moving to Mendocino? No, Montecito. Where is that? Well, it's next to Santa Barbara. And uh, so that's how it started. And I decided I, I wanted to try my hand at films. I, I'd never had a fascination with, with film. And uh, I said, you know, that'd be a great place. And at that time, you know, I was a little unrealistic, thinking that they would let me write songs for film. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the great Don Costa said, Barry, nobody is going to let you write songs for movies, you know, unless that was there was a day when that happened, you know, when they would go to the great old songwriters. Sure. And they would write the songs, and then they composers would do the background score but he says today if you want to you want to write a song for that movie you better score that movie because uh, whoever is is hired as the composer is going to want to do the main title in the end you know and unless you're a huge celebrity and they want you you know as a singer songwriter no one is going to hire you to write the songs for that movie that that, that era is over and I want to remind you, your last hit was over three years ago. <laughs> so you are not exactly in demand. Yeah. So I said, wow. All right. So I, I did a crash course on composing music for film. Well, had you ever even considered it or was, was film music in terms of the scoring something that you uh, had even really thought about. I mean, in some ways, a lot of people would think of it as being literally something that is invisible, you know, <laughs> to a film, uh, you know, if it, if it draws attention. Of course, there's people like Bernard Herrmann and their music 
certainly does shine. But up till that point, had you ever even considered it or were you an appreciator of film music at that point? You know, I have to be honest. No, it never occurred to me to compose music for a film. Write a song for a film, yeah. Yeah. If you're a songwriter, that's going to occur to you. But to take on the dramatic score was really nothing I ever uh, aspired to do. But when Don Costa said, well, if you, if you want a career in film, you, you, better, you better learn real fast how to do that. And so I started by just listening and listening to soundtracks and seeing how they worked on the film and, uh, and doing a crash course in, in <laughs> composition and theory. But, you know, listen, I will never be in the class of a Bernard Herrmann or a Jerry Goldsmith or a Johnny Williams or, a, you know, the really great classical composers. I, I don't have that background. I, I don't have those tools. So I I said, well, how how do I fit in here then? You know, I, I, I can't suddenly take the next 10 years out to study orchestration and uh, composition. So I, I really, I'm a fast study. I really got the idea on how music works in a film. And, uh, but I could compose it. I could sketch it, but I always used an orchestrator sure. to orchestrate it for, for the orchestra. Because why should I try to do something that I'm not good at? Yeah. Plus, it would take me forever because I, you know, I, I just didn't have that those kind of tools in my chest. But I did compose the score, and you know, if somebody has to, then orchestrate it for the reeds and the strings and you know, the brass. You know, fun. You know, that's how I I, I approached it in that respect. Yeah. And I said, all right, if someone wants a score by Johnny Williams or Jerry Goldsmith, I'm not their guy. But if someone wants a score that's more contemporary and more pop-oriented, you know, something that relates more to what's happening in the music business, and there weren't a lot of people doing that, you see, as composers... Some of the artists, you know, who were big at the time, they, they might hire them to do the main title song or something. But nobody was really scoring film that had that contemporary background. And I said, well, that, there's my niche. Yeah. My niche is to bring that to film and not try to compete with the people that I have no, no business competing with. Sure. So that's how I started out of curiosity, during this period of time where you've, you're taking this crash course on how you're going to do this and you're starting to pay attention to film scores, do you recall any specific films and film scores that you saw at that time where things just kind of clicked for you and like, oh, like those aha moments of like, oh, that's, that's how it can work dramatically? Well, you know, I mean, that's a long time ago. I, I don't know if I can point. I, I just know one thing. I know one thing. I loved, uh, what's his name, Johnny, um, you know, he's a shadow of your smile. Oh, yeah, Mandel. See, I related to Johnny Mandel 
because not only was he a fine composer, but he melody. See, that's what I do. I, I recognized how beautiful his melodies were and how he framed them into a score. Hank Mancini was another a guy who impressed me. Yeah. Because he, he had that gift of melody uh, along with the compositional abilities. I loved Jerry Goldsmith, but he, he was not that melodic. But I love what he did in a film. You know, I just said, wow. You know, probably the guy... I, I really didn't relate to is Johnny Williams. Because you know, Johnny Williams is, is more of a classic composer mm-hmm. and he, he really doesn't write melodies and and, and his his whole background you can feel, you know, the classical music in that background. Or it, it, maybe a little jazz and classic. So while I admired his abilities, I didn't relate to him the way I did Dave Grusin. Jerry Goldsmith, Johnny Mandel, Mancini, who else? Well, of course, I love Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. But once again, he was, he did, he did things that I couldn't do and that I didn't really relate to. Sure. You know, it was a fascinating time, not only in uh, American history, but also in pop culture and the film business. The times we're talking about here is like the early 70s and this kind of changing of the guard of the idea of the studio system to now transitioning to this influx of young people that are making films, some sometimes independently, but also being asked to make films for young people mm-hmm. by the new studio system. And so again, it's like you're kind of just in the right place at the right time for this because you end up working with some really great directors really early on in their careers, like Walter Hill, for instance. And mm-hmm. what was it like? Because I think most people that are going to listen to this podcast are they're familiar with the Warrior score, but you had worked on hard times. What was it like working with Walter Hill? Well, this is a funny story. My my first movie with a with a writer director was with John Milius. Yes, Dillinger, right? It's called Dillinger. And John was a wonderful writer. But he was—he reminded me of Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> he was very, <laughs> you know, let's go out and hunt, you know. And so he did Dillinger, and I really had to catch up on my 30s music. And so I really set the scene of that time and uh, try to stay, there was so much action, try to stay away from it. You know, I, when I see earlier pictures, you know, the old pictures, it was like, Music was sawing through the entire movie, you know. Yeah, yeah. Today's scoring is much more subtle, and, and music, sometimes reality just is in your face without music. And when you put music behind it, then you rob the reality of the scene. So scores tend to be, I think, a little sparser these days, uh, the guys that are, that are cognizant of that. But anyway, so I did Dillinger. And uh, John had one request. He said, when Dillinger comes home, I want you to play Red River Valley. You know, I want a harmonica doing the uh, melody and, you know, and the strength. (laughs) 
please don't make me do that. She says, what's, what's wrong? I said, well, because that's a cliche. If Dillinger comes back and I go, wah, 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 I said, it's just too much of a cliche. He said, well, it was good enough for John Ford. <laughs> so I said, yeah, but he said, no buts. That's what I want. So I went to the producer, Larry Gordon. I said, Larry, talk to John. I, I will, I'll give him something like Red River Valley. I'll even use the harmonica. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do something that'll make him happy. I just don't want to play Red River Valley. Larry says, look, I'm having enough problems. First time director, I got enough on my plate. If he wants Red River Valley, give him Red River Valley. So I said, okay. So I did it, but I try to justify it. You know, I, I had, when Dillinger and his gang went to this uh, little country picnic, and they had a country band, I had them playing Red River Valley. Yeah. And so Dillinger says to Billy, I like that song, you know. Okay. When he was in the prison carving the the fake gun, I had uh, Warren Beatty humming, mm -hmm, you know, looking every way to justify that, you know, when he came home, that's what he was going to be playing. And uh, the, the picture was finished, came out, and I went to see it, and uh, it still bugged me, you know, <laughs> but so be it. Part of the job, unfortunately, is that you're kind of slave to the picture and slave to the director, right? You know, I wrote and produced. I own the record company. I made the decision. Yeah. I put out what I thought was my best. I, I didn't have to ask anybody what I should put out. When you go into the film business, you are subservient. You are at the, the director and the producer tells you what they want you to do for the film. Now, they don't tell you how to do it, but they, they tell you what they want. And you have to look at it that way, and you can't be resentful in any way. You've got to say, okay, they, they've spent a better part of two or three years on this project, and I've got to respect that, and I've got to try to give them what they're looking for. And I've got to try to protect them if they're not right. Maybe give them what they're looking for, but in, in, in a different way. You know, you just have to be diplomatic and, and you have to put the movie and their wishes first and then use your skill to try to make it as good as you can. And I, I think the picture was fun and it was great and I think it did pretty well. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is the, the next, I don't know, a year or so later, uh, I get a call from the producer and he is working with another first-time director, Walter Hill, who wrote Hard Times. And the producer said, look, I, I've told Walter about you, but he's calling the shots. So I've arranged a lunch with you at the studio. If he likes you and he wants to use you, you're on. And if he doesn't, I tried. Yeah. I said, well, thank you very much. So I met with Walter for lunch. I was a little nervous. I wanted to do the movie. And so I wanted to make the best possible impression. And we sit down at the table. And I'll never forget, he leaned forward. And, you know, he, he says, I loved the music in Dillinger. I said, oh, well. Well, thanks, Walter. He says, whose idea was it to play Red River Valley when Dillinger came home? 
Now, in the spirit of Hollywood, you know I was about to blurt, well, that was my idea. Because, <laughs> you know, he told me he loved the score and he wants to know whose idea it was. And I, it was coming out and then somewhere in me there was this shred of integrity that would not allow me to say that. And instead I blurted, well, I have to admit that was John's idea. And Walter Hill said, that's the only thing I didn't like in the movie. And I sat there and said, my God, there is a God in Hollywood. <laughs> I told the truth. And it worked. Can you imagine if I took credit for that? Then he said he didn't like it. Then, then what do I say? Yeah. So I told the truth and I got the movie. And it was fun working with Walter. But once again, it was a period piece, you know? Yeah. So I, I used the, the period music and a little bit of country folk stuff, but it really wasn't my specialty. So you're working with these first-time writer-directors really early on in the careers. How do they convey to you what exactly it is that they're looking for. You're kind of making the point that they were period pieces, so you already have an idea of like what direction you need to go in. But I'm always very interested in the director-composer collaboration, and especially since this was so early on on such iconic directors' careers. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the initial meetings, about how they convey to you what they're looking for. Were you doing spotting sessions back then? I would imagine that temp scores probably weren't a big thing back then. So I was hoping you could maybe talk about a little bit about that process. And you can talk about it in relation to both of them or talk about one and then, then the other, if you like. Well, you know something? Of course we had those meetings. And what I learned from Don Costin, some guys, is when you have those meetings, Listen, okay? Don't do a lot of talking. Listen and try and understand what they want. Because a lot of times a, a director kind of knows what he wants, but he doesn't know how to express it in musical terms. So you have to listen to what they're trying to accomplish, what scenes they, they think they may need a little help with, and those were the content of the meetings. They didn't deal specifically in musical terms. It was more like what the picture was about and what are the, the scenes that are most important. Today, you know, it's, it's a much different world. I mean, my gosh, with home studios, it's very common for a composer to do the score on MIDI, you know, and the director comes over and hears the score and looks at it against the picture and comments. Yeah you know, before it's even recorded uh, or even when they're even close to the dubbing stage. So today it's a, it's a much more, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, there's a connection between the director and the composer. The director gets to kind of get a preview on where the composer is going and can influence that. The time when I was doing music, it was like, well, here, here's what I'm trying to do. Go do it. And uh, other than being at the scoring session and we'd always have subsequent meetings and, you know, and I, I get fresh input from them, but most of them were busy editing the film and dealing with sound effects, you know, and all that stuff. And so it wasn't as, uh, as a closer relationship as you might think. Yeah. 
You know, one of the things I find really interesting about your career is the eclecticness of everything you've worked on, from writing pop songs to producing them and owning your own company. We've kind of jumped the gun and got into a little bit of the composing, but looking at some of your credits and stuff, you are also a music supervisor on films. Well, my friend, actually the producer of Dillinger and Hard Times, was head of production at AIP, American International Pictures, which was kind of a hot little independent that did those cheap films. Yeah. And he asked me if I'd come on board as a consultant and supervisor because he felt the guys at AIP knew nothing about music. They they were just trying to find a score that would only cost $2,500. You know? He said, I need somebody to help me here. And so I served in that, you know, that was like a part-time job for me. Sure. And I worked on his different film projects and brought in some contemporary people and kind of oversaw that part of it. You know, I, I got James Brown for Black Caesar. I got the Motown collection for Cooley High. So, so I, I was like that liaison for AIP. He later went on to become head of 20th Century Fox. At least some of those films were directed by Larry Cohen. Do you work at all with Larry? I I, I just worked as the musical supervisor for AIP with Larry. And I, I would just look at a film. Now, now this was a, a black exploitation film. All right. It was not a masterpiece. You know, it was on the cheap. So I said, well, we, we need to get down with the music because if, if you have some, you know, inner city music and, and the real thing, that's going to really work with this picture. Yeah. You know what I mean? A, a dramatic score would be a disaster. Yeah. So you're better off to put the real thing behind these guys, you know, uh, strutting down Broadway and all that. And that's going to really work with this film. And, who else but James Brown? You know, I said, wow, that would be a good call. And it was, except, boy, this is going to go into a longer story than I thought. <laughs> uh, I contacted James Brown's people. He was interested. I got him on board. I set up uh, several screenings and he agreed to come and we were going to look at the film and spot it. I figured these guys don't know how to spot a film. So I would sit there with him and help him spot uh, where the music would go and so forth and so on. He never showed up. I mean, I scheduled three screenings. I was starting to look like a fool. Yeah. And uh, then his guy called up and said, you know, James feels a little intimidated. Why don't you, spot the film, and send over a videotape. I mean, is that really even an option back then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had videotapes. <laughs> so I did. I sat, sat in the screening room with a with an editor and, and spotted the film, you know, where we wanted music and so forth and so on, and um, took those uh, spotting notes and... Uh, videotape and send it to James Brown's people, you know, and we're getting closer and closer to dubbing the movie. 
and I haven't heard from anybody. I started to really get nervous because I talked to everyone at AIP to actually giving James Brown $25,000. They almost had a heart attack. Yeah. So I was getting very worried. Kept calling James Brown. Yeah, yeah, everything is going fine. I said, okay, great. But we have a dubbing, you know, of the movie on this date. So I need to get the music so I can build it into the film. So I, I need it as soon as you can get it. Well, it came down to like, I think it was six days before we were going to dub the movie. And I still didn't have the music. Finally, I called call the guy up and said, look, we, ha- we have a serious problem here. I-, I need this music. All right, I promise I'll drop it off at AIP. Well, what they dropped off was a bunch of boxes of tape. There were no cues to the timings I had given. It was just a, a bunch of tape and, and with the band playing and James, you know, doing his thing. Although I did write Down and Out in New York City. So he did record that song. I'm sitting there looking at a, a bunch of tapes and nothing is cut to the timing notes. So I called Larry Gordon, the head of production, and I called both Larry's. I said, we've got a serious problem here. I was living in Montecito at this time. I'll stay in town. I need three music editors if we're going to make this dub. And so they got three music editors in there. And I bounced around from one room to the other and took that music and cut it into those timing notes. Now, if this were a serious picture with a serious score, I would have been dead in the water. Yeah. But because it was the real thing, when I laid it into the picture, it worked. Yeah. And so we dubbed the picture, and it just it had that street feel. And uh, I was even amazed <laughs> that uh, I managed to pull it off, which leads to the fact that Larry Cohen now does another picture and calls me and he says, I want James Brown to do the score for this picture. And I said, Larry, have you lost your mind? I, I, I No, you, you don't want that. You know, we got lucky last time. But he said, no, I want him to do it. You know, uh, and I said, well, then you're going to do it without me because I worked for nothing the last time because I felt responsible, but I don't want any part of this. Anyway, he hired James Brown and, of course, fired him when he didn't have someone to pick up the pieces. And in fairness to James Brown, it's just he had no idea of how to deal with a score. Yeah, just a totally different world for him. Exactly. And so this was part of my education. That, you know, said just because someone's a musician, just because he's a singer, that doesn't mean he knows how to deal with a score. That was my supervising story. (laughs) Uh, With Motown, you know, uh, that was an amazing catalog, and Cooley High was just, I I knew right away, once again, you don't want a score for this. You want songs that relate to this movie. And Motown had those songs. I just negotiated a great deal with Motown at the time. And basically, for the most part, the score to Cooley High were those uh, 
great Motown songs. And it worked. You've written some of the most memorable television themes of all time as well. <laughs> so you've really covered everything. You know, I would, I would love, especially because now there's a new version of SWAT on the air. I would love to hear about the theme and the music to SWAT because I feel like one of your great strengths is having your ear to the street of like what's going on in popularity and pop culture and stuff. And certainly the theme from SWAT is not unlike some of the black exploitation type soundtracks that you were music supervising. Well, at that time, most television, main times, if not all, were kind of jazz-oriented. Yeah. You know, with uh, band and orchestra, and they were kind of jazzy. Well, there were some exceptions, but for the most part, that was the direction. And uh, so I said, well, you know, I, I think I, I think I got a place there. I mean, I got something to offer, but nobody was offering me anything. <laughs> if the truth were known, I had done two motion pictures, but never a television show. Sure. And one night I was going into a club called Pips in Los Angeles, and coming out of the club was Aaron Spelling and uh, his wife. And we stopped and we talked, and I said, Aaron, kidding on the square, you know, you've had all these hit television shows, but you've never had a hit theme. Give me a shot, and I'll give you a hit. And he says, well, all right, I'll think about it. And that was it. You know, just <laughs> kidding on the square, boom, boom, boom. Well, about three months later, I get a call in Montecito from Aaron Spelling's office. Gets on the phone. He says, I got a, a series going, a mid-season series going on the air. And uh, I want you to come in to 20th and see it. And I want that hit you promised me. I said, you've got it, Aaron. And so I was so excited. I was jumping around the house, high-fiving my wife. <laughs> I drove into L.A. Um, they took me to the screening room. Lights went down. Up pulls this truck. The doors burst open. The SWAT team rushes out of the truck. And I just said, oh, Jesus. You know, at that time with the L.A. riots, SWAT teams were not popular. Yeah. And I said, why couldn't it be a guy, a girl? Two girls, two guys, anything but a SWAT team. Because I said, what do I do with that? So I, I watched the, you know, the pilot, which was everyone deploying and shooting and all that. I was very disappointed because I didn't feel it was a vehicle to get a hit song. Sure. And therefore, I was disappointed because now I just had to do a, a score to play the action. And there's no way for me to uh, give him what I promised him. So I met with Aaron afterwards. He says, what do you think? I said, oh, it's, it's terrific. You know, what am I going to say? And then I went home. And for one week, I tried to write a hit about a SWAT team and gave up. Like an actual song. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you can't do it. 
So I said, what I'm going to do is try to make this main title as exciting as I can make it. And he'll forget that it isn't going to be a hit, but at least it will really open that show in an exciting manner. And so that's when I wrote SWAT, not as trying to write a hit, trying to score that opening to be bombastic and exciting. But see, I I was using my contemporary background. And, you know, people underestimate rhythm. You see, rock and roll and R&B, it's all about rhythm. Yeah. So if you have a big orchestra and all you need rhythm to do is just keep the beat while the the orchestra plays, that's a different kind of rhythm. But if rhythm is the dominating factor, then that takes some doing. And that's why, you know, all those guys with hit records would spend weeks just working on the rhythm and the guitars and, you know, and that approach. So I was well aware of that. So I called the music supervisor for Air and I said, listen, this is my first television show. And of course, the time allotted to do the score was much different than they give you for motion pictures. Sure. You know, this was get a cue up, boom, one or two takes, next, one or two takes, next. It's a whole different production line and one that I certainly wasn't used to. I was used to taking all the time I needed to get it right. So I said, look, could I have a session with just the rhythm players? He laughed. He said, no, you can't. <laughs> I said, it's just, it's really important that I have that rhythm right. He says, I tell you what I'll do. I'll give you one hour. You want to come in one hour early with the rhythm players. I'll have the orchestra come in an hour later, and that's all I can do for you. So I said, well, I'll take it. So I went to a, a new studio, an engineer I'd never worked with. I got my rhythm section in there, and the hour went by, and Rocky came out in the studio and says, well, let's go. Your hour's up. And I said, Rocky, please. I don't have it. I just, I can't get it to come together. And see, that's something you can't write. You know, you can write out the chords. You can know what you want in your head, but you've got to find it with the rhythm players. Yeah. When you say rhythm players, you're talking about drums and bass only or just like core band? Drums, bass, guitars, you know, everything that makes up the rhythm section. Percussionists. And as I said, you, you can write out string lines and brass lines and all that, but if you want the rhythm to be really unique and contemporary, that takes some time. Sometimes it happens quickly, and sometimes it takes a while for it to come together. I mean, that has a lot to do with the chemistry, and it can't really write groove, you know? <laughs> you got it exactly. You have it exactly. There's no way to write that. There's no way to write those guitar parts. That has to come from the guitar player. Yeah. So anyway, he said, look, I've got 25 musicians in the coffee room on the clock, and I need you to get this to tape. And, you know, all I want to do is to make everyone happy. But I said, Rock, I can't do that. He said, you can't do that? I said, no, I can't do that because it's not ready to go to tape. He said, "Uh, all right, then the responsibility of this session just landed in your lap. You're in charge. And he stomped out of the studio. Well, I was just stressed. Sure. Anyway, I went back to the musicians and 45 minutes later, now you got 25 musicians being paid. 45 minutes later, I 
walked in the room. I said, okay, I'm ready to put this to tape. Dead silence. I put the rhythm to tape on the main and end title, and that was on the 24 track. Yeah. And then in came the musicians. Now, once the musicians are in there and we're doing the score, that's on three strike. So there is no mixing. It just goes on three strike mag, and it's built into the film. Anyway, I am so stressed. Everyone in the stu- in that control room was just pissed at me. And uh, I'm just moving ahead, trying to get this score done. And uh, in the middle of the session, during a 10-minute break, uh, I hear the music coordinator say to the engineer, give me a, a rough mix of the main title. And I said, excuse me, why? Because Mr. Spelling wants to hear the main title. And I said, you know something? I can't let you do that. I, I spent all this time, months, and, and all this time in the studio, and I want Mr. Spelling to hear the main title that I have in mind. If you're going to take a rough mix off a 24-track, there's no way he's going to hear the product the way it should be. Yeah. And he looked at me and said, Son, you've done your first and last show for Spelling Productions. I just want you to know that. And you can tell Mr. Spelling why he can't have that main title. And it was just horrible. You know, I finished the session. Everyone stood up and left without a word. Here I, I looked so forward to this, and I burned all my bridges on the first day <laughs> to make the score. Uh, I stayed back with the engineer, and we mixed the 24-track down. And I went to my place in L.A., called my wife. She said, how did everything go? And I said, well, I'm sitting here with a double vodka, and I've never had a more stressful day in my life. And I don't know how it went. You know, I'm so messed up, I just don't know. Anyway, the next day, I get a call from Len Goldberg, who was Aaron Spelling's partner, and the guy who usually, Aaron didn't like confrontations, usually the guy who, you know, dropped the axe. Yeah. And he called me and said, Barry, we love that theme. Aaron is dancing around the office. It is the greatest. I couldn't believe it. He said, now, you went way over budget. We can't do that in television, but this time it was certainly worth it. So we'll forgive that, but you can't do that again. I said, oh, I won't. And that was it. You know, I just, I, I tell my kids that story because I say, you know, in life sometimes it's hard. But if you really feel what you have in mind isn't there, you got to have the guts to stand up for it. And even if you never work for those people again, you got to make that move. Well, <laughs> what further proves this is the theme that I thought would just be an exciting, bombastic theme for SWAT went to number one in the nation. Yeah. So none of that would have happened had I caved and put it to tape before it was ready. Yeah, you got to stick to your guns. On one hand, by sticking up for yourself and your art, you, you can have the situation where, like you said, maybe you don't work for them ever again. But on the other hand, if you deliver a subpar product, you might not ever work for them again anyway. Right on. So you might as well deliver something you're proud of. And at least if that's the reason why you don't work anymore, you, at least you know you did your best. Well, it goes further than that. I think if you grow up in the record business, you just get used to only putting out your best. And 
then you go into film and it starts to be a little bit of a compromise in motion pictures, but it still works. And then at that time, television, then it becomes a real compromise sometimes because it's hard to only do your best because to only do your best, you need a lot of time to pull that off, usually. Yeah. And at that time in television, of course, television has drastically changed now with cable. There's some meaningful productions, and they do take the time to do it right. But at that time, it was crank it out. And uh, even though I did that season and a half, those cues, I just had to grip my teeth, even on the dramatic cues, because they were never the way I wanted them to be. It's always a sloppiness. You know, when you run run a cue down once and then record it on the second pass, there's no way to get everything right. Yeah. So that always bothered me a little bit because I am a perfectionist to some extent. Yeah. Now, before we dive into some of the scores that I want to dive deep into, I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't at least bring up probably your most recognizable piece of music, which is Nadia's theme. lot of people know it strictly as being the opening theme to Young and the Restless, but that was a piece of music that originated from one of your first films, right? Well, that has an interesting story connected to it as well, if you want to hear it. <laughs> I would love to hear it. I mean, I, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. You know, I, It's tough to figure out how to manage the amount of time I have you for. But uh, I guess my my one question is because coming from not only the creative aspect of the music industry, having written music, but you're also coming from a business background in the music industry with your own record company and stuff. You know, obviously, I'm not asking for figures, but when a song like or a piece of music like that that originates from a film becomes popular because of uh, it gets renamed even because of something connected to an Olympic athlete, but then it finds a home as the opening for a soap opera for decades. Are those the kinds of residuals that you could live off of? Like, what is, what's the residual situation on something like that? No, it's a lot of money. And it keeps the theme alive. So it has a dual purpose. You're making money, and it's reminding people of that theme, keeping it alive. I've got to tell you this. So my first movie was RPM with Stanley Kramer. Mm-hmm. And my second one was Bless the Beast and Children. And so I wrote Bless the Beast and Children. Yeah, the song. Yeah. Bless the Beast and the Children. And uh, Stanley loved it. So the whole score was like Johnny Mandel weaving that into the score. You know, about these young misfits at a summer camp that wanted to save this herd of buffalo. And uh, and so that theme was woven into the picture. 
and I was quite pleased with it. Well, chalk it off to my inexperience with film at a crucial time in the picture when one of these young kids, when they were trying to save the buffalo, was killed. Now, our little hero is dead, and the only thing I have to play against that is the theme in a major key. I had painted myself into a corner. I had established this theme throughout the picture, and now Cotton, that's his name, died. It was a very poignant and important time in the picture, and I couldn't use the theme that I had been developing throughout the picture. Now, the other choice was just to write a piece of music just for that scene, but it would come out of nowhere. So I just said, what am I going to do? And after suffering with it for a while, I came up with something that I thought might work. The accompaniment for Bless the Beast and Children was very distinctive. It was, you know, going to the ninth and then back to the tonic, to the ninth and the tonic. You know, it had that rhythmic thing, the ninth to the tonic. What if I keep that? That that will identify with Bless the Beast and Children, that accompaniment, but I'll just put it in a minor key. So that accompaniment will relate to what I've been doing, then I'll have to write a new melody, obviously, because it's in a minor key. And it was such an important scene, rather than just knocking off a cue, I really worked on that one. It was a minute and a half, and I worked on that the way I would work on writing a hit song. Because the only way I knew how to touch people is with melody. Yeah. And Melody just doesn't come when you want it. You don't just sit down at the piano and, oh, here's a great melody. You have to sit there and wait for it. And you, you'll try this, you'll try that, and like that. Sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. But you have to be patient and wait for it. And I did. And I really spent an unbelievable amount of time on that one little cue because I thought it was so important. So then we went to the dubbing stage and I thought it worked great because it's still identified with the main title. It's just, just a, a sadder version of it. So I was quite pleased with myself that I got myself out of that corner I'd painted myself into. Anyway, you know the rest. Um, Bless the Beast and Children was a successful record. I was nominated for an Academy Award, and uh, that was a nice experience. You know, I don't the movie didn't do that well, but it was great to be nominated. Yeah. So two years later, I get a call from a television producer, and he said, you know, on the Bless the Beasts and Children soundtrack album, there is a cut called Cotton's Dream. And I just think it's beautiful, and I have a show going on the air called The Young and the Restless, and I'd like to make that the main title theme. What do you think about that? I said, well, if you were here, I'd be kissing your hands. <laughs> of course, I'd. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so Cotton's Dream became theme from The Young and the Restless. And, of course, theme, uh, The Young and the Restless became an instant hit. And uh, it was just amazing. And they kept using that music. You know, the Blessed the Beast and Children album turned out to be a great tracking album. 
you know, during the Watergate trials, every time they, they cut away from testimony, they were playing cuts off the Bless the Beast and Children album. Yeah. You know, which was either the melody for Bless the Beast and Children or Cotton's Dream. It was unbelievable. And Fidel Castro used to come on the air with Cotton's Dream. This little piece of music just became this tracking album, this soundtrack. Anyway, five years later, Nadia Comaneci steals the heart of the world. Twelve-year-old little gymnast from Romania and gets the first perfect score on the double horizontal bars. And it's in slow motion. And it's just beautiful and artistic. And the guy at ABC said, I, I need something to put against this slow motion film clip. And he went into his music library and pulled out a five-year-old soundtrack album because there was a cut on there called Cotton's Dream that he thought would work. And that's what he laid behind that film clip. And now this little theme keeps reinventing itself. Now Cotton's Dream and Young and the Restless becomes Nadia's theme. Yeah. A&M re-releases it as Nadia's theme, and it's an instant hit. It's the gift that keeps on giving, that one. The gift that keeps on giving. And just a few years ago, Mary J. Blige had a big hit called No More Drama, based on Nadia's theme. Broken heart again, another lesson learned. Better know your friends, or else you will get burned. Gotta count on me, cause I can guarantee that I'll be fine. No little piece of music that the only reason I worked on it because it was so important to the emotion of the film has had a life that amazes me. Yeah. It just keeps reinventing itself. Amazing. Amazing how that can happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we haven't gotten to any of Barry's work in the horror genre yet, but this is about the midway point and a good place to stop for now. I'd like to thank Barry for lending his time, experience, and knowledge to the show. Make sure you come back for part two of this fascinating conversation when we will discuss his work on The Warriors, Night of the Creeps, Exorcist 3, and much, much more. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help the podcast get recommended to potential listeners and raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts. And on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. Please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. Mm